Hello and salam. Welcome to episode 2 of the Persian History Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Rakshan, and today, before I start, I just wanted to inform you guys on how you could help the podcast grow. I also feel like I have some explaining to do on the big gap between episode 1 and episode 2. For those of you who don't know, my day job is an accountant, and this was one of the craziest tax seasons I've ever worked. So I'm really sorry for the delay. I just really didn't have the time to put into this. I'd also like to thank some of you people who really supported me heavily with ideas, promotions, and introductions to new viewers. For those of you who want to skip all that and get right down to business, skip to the three-minute mark to start where we left off last episode. All right, first off... I just really wanted to thank a few important people for going out of their way to help me with this awesome project, which has become quite successful with over 300 listens in the first five days. I really want to thank my podcasting idol, Mark Schaus, for endorsing me on his website and Facebook group. I can't even begin to tell you how much that helped. A lot of his fans from the Russian Rulers and History podcast were also interested in Persian history, so they came on board. Everyone listening to this should also check out the Russian Rulers in History podcast by Mark Schaus. He's my main inspiration to start this project, and I couldn't be more thankful for him. I wanted to thank the following people for giving me suggestions and ideas. I also wanted to take the time to thank Dan Carlin of Hardcore History and Common Sense for taking the time out of his life to both endorse me and give me a lengthy letter full of tips and suggestions for my future podcasts. Now, if you really like what you hear and you like to help the podcast out, there are a few ways you can. Firstly, the best thing you can do for me is to share my podcast link. Every time you listen to an episode, if you really liked it, please do me a favor and share it with five of your friends who like history. Make sure you don't share it to your friends who don't like history because I don't want to be a spammer. This will help get the word out about my podcast and lead to its overall success. And for all my rich, wealthy listeners... If you're on your yacht listening to this, the second way you can help me is by donations. Although I have a full-time job, donations would really help me buy more books, buy better recording equipment, and also help me build a better website. For those of you who are wondering, I plan on making a part-time job out of this, and hopefully maybe even a full-time job. That's a real dream of mine. My episodes will always be free to the public, but I do plan on making some supplemental paid episodes in the future about both Persian history and general history, similar to what Dan Carlin of Hardcore History does. So if you'd really like to help, donations would be awesome. And it doesn't even have to be money, it could be books, because I could always use books for the future podcast. And if you can't do that, it's okay. As long as you listen to my podcast, I'm happy. Alright, now let's get back down to business. For those of you who haven't listened to episode 1, Cyrus, the king of the Persians, is about to go into battle with 50,000 men against the mad senile king of the Medeans, his own grandfather, King Astyages, and his force of 250,000 men. The final battle is about to commence. Medeans versus Persians. Cousins versus cousins. If the Medeans won, it would mean one less enemy. If the Persians lost, it would mean the annihilation of their entire race. The two armies met outside the ancient city of Pastargai. King Asyaj assembled his men for a full charge. He stood behind his troops to command them in slaughtering the Persians. Cyrus, unlike King Asyaj, was on the front lines, 
prepared to do battle with his fellow soldiers. It was the middle of the day. The sun beamed down on both armies. Astyages, the senile tyrant king, raised his sword and after a moment of silence gave the command to charge. Chariots collided. Swords clashed. Shields were smashed into the faces of opponents. Spears entered flesh. Limbs were lacerated. It must have been a truly horrific sight, watching human beings destroy each other like that. But it had to be done. Injustice and tyranny could no longer be tolerated. If the price of freedom was blood, then so be it. Cyrus was outnumbered, and the battle was starting to look like it was in the Medeans' favor. Cyrus's troops looked toward him for some sign of assurance or a plan. He told him to be patient. Only a fool would go into battle outnumbered five to one without some type of plan. Once the Medeans were at their zenith of confidence, Cyrus lifted his sword and gave the signal. What happened in the distance on the Median side of the battle, once Cyrus gave his signal, left both Persian and Median soldiers in shock. As soon as the signal was given, Harpagus took his massive force of elite, loyal Median soldiers and smashed it into Asiages' left flank. King Asiages, being the senile, tyrannical, and megalomaniac that he was, had completely forgotten or completely disregarded what unforgivable crime he committed against his top general only a decade ago. Hate and disdain had been brewing for ten years now, and Harpagus would finally have his glorious revenge on this day. The main Median force was now outflanked. Confusion and fear permeated throughout the battlefield. Asiages' troops had no idea what was going on. They still had superior numbers, but they were now outflanked. It was only a matter of time before they were decimated by Cyrus and Harpagus' elite force. After Harpagus and Cyrus mowed their way through the enemy troops, King Asiages was finally surrounded. The battle was finally over. The battle was finally over. Persian and Median bodies lay everywhere, bloodied and dead. In the back of the Median lines, Asiages knelt wounded and defeated. Harpagus took this opportunity to approach him and say, See now, thou didst give me the flesh of my own son for meat, and lo, thou hast gained for thyself slavery in the place of a kingdom. This was the ultimate revenge he could have gotten, to make sure the prophecy that King Asiage was so afraid of came true. He jeered at him, enjoying his demise, and waited for a response. Asiages, then in confusion, looked upon him and said, Sayest thou, then, that this deed is of thy doing? Harpagus answered, Yes, for I devise a thing for him, and rightly claim it for my own. Then Asiages, who was now furious and even more confused, answered him, saying, Surely, then, thou art more foolish and wicked than all other men. For if thou hast done this thing for yourself, you might have made yourself a king. Why did thou suffer the power to go to another? For if thou must needs give the kingdom to another, then keep it for thyself. Thou hadst done well to give it to a Mede rather than a Persian. But now thou hast brought it about the Medes, though they were innocent in the matter, having been masters aforetime, are now servants. And the Persians, having been before our servants, are now our masters." Little did Astyages know how wrong he really was. There is a really obvious reason Cyrus was called Cyrus the Great after this battle. Not only would the Persians' former arch-enemies, the Medes, not be slaves, nobody would be slaves. 
King Cyrus would completely revolutionize the known world, create the first document of human rights, liberate the Jews of Babylon, promote equality, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and he did so immediately. Usually after a war, especially a war where your enemy is trying to annihilate you completely, you take the soldiers as prisoners of war and you sell the women and children into slavery. But no, Cyrus began his reforms immediately by first making Harpagus, who was of Median blood, a top general in his army, and secondly by combining the Persian and Median army into one single, grand, unstoppable, cohesive force. Many elite warriors of Median blood were immediately inaugurated into the Persian elite force of immortals. When I was at Persepolis, my father showed me an engraving of the immortal soldiers. Some of them had square helmets, and some of them had round helmets. These troops were not separated units, but in one cohesive force. The square helmet troops were Persian, and the round helmet troops were Median. I'll leave a picture on the website for those of you who'd like to see this. And as for King Asiagus, the tyrant, the evil man who made Harpagus eat his own son, and had summoned Cyrus to be killed, would be spared. Although King Asiagus had turned into an evil tyrant, Cyrus didn't forget about all the amazing things the king did for him. He brought him into his castle. He pretty much raised him from the time he was a little boy to a teenager. He took him on hunts. He bought him numerous presents. And he really was an incredible grandfather. Cyrus would let him live out his remaining years within his palace. What I'm extremely proud of and notice is a reoccurring action in Persian history is the enormously high level of mercy practiced by the Persians. It is this mercy alongside their just and ethical behavior that brings them to such great heights. And it's only when they forget these values that brought them to where they were in the hundreds of years later when we begin to see their own downfall. Cyrus now had the combined nations of Persia and Medea under his very fingertip. The entire known world was his oyster. The Jews were being held hostage in Babylon. Innocent people were being mummified alive in Egypt. Slavery, injustice, tyranny, and murder were rampant throughout the entire known world. A hero was needed. A liberator was needed. Not only was he now here, he had an elite army of 250,000 veterans under him. These loyal soldiers would be the ones who would help Cyrus bring about peace, justice, and liberty throughout the world. Though most of these troops had seen their fair share of battle, they still needed to be refined and turned into one cohesive, well-oiled, powerful force. After some short celebrations and bearing of the fallen soldiers, training began. Cyrus created the most influential military force in Persian history. They were called the Immortals. Their numbers were never higher or lower than 10,000 men. The Immortal had two separate identities one of himself, the name he was given at birth, and another name that he was given once he became an immortal. The immortal name never changed. For example, once you put on the armor, you were that person. If someone like me by the name of Arash became an immortal, I would be given the name of Fariborz. When I was killed in battle, another man would take my armor, and he would now be Fariborz. So in other words, the man who wields the sword and holds the shield under the armor is a mortal man, but symbolically the warrior never dies and is immortal. This played a very strong psychological role in warfare, because when an enemy soldier came face to face with the man he thought he killed yesterday, he'd be terrified, 
and most importantly, demoralized. After your fallen mentor was slain, you would take his exact armor and don his name. The spirit of the immortal corpse never diminished. During this period in history, standing armies were not common. For those of you who don't know what a standing army is, it's pretty much an army where soldiers within it are full-time soldiers. Most armies in the world during this period of time consisted of kings, tribal chiefs, and their subordinate soldiers, who after the war or campaign would go back to their daily lives as either noblemen, farmers, or peasants. The immortals were full-time soldiers. Their job was to train in the art of war each and every day in order to protect their king and country. Immortals training began at a very young age where they would learn, as mentioned before in episode 1, javelin throwing, hand-to-hand combat, spear fighting, mounted archery, and wrestling. The weapons and armor they used in training were different than the ones they used in actual battle. Shields, bows, swords, spears, javelins, and later on in history, axes and maces would all be close to two times heavier than what was used in battle. This was done to build strength, endurance, and toughness so that they would never tire on the battlefield. The training methods these ancient soldiers partook in still lives on today, but in a very different form called Varazesha Pahlavani, or translated, Sport of Champions. I'll leave extensive links to this on the Facebook group and on the website. Vazisha Pahlavani became very famous during the medieval times in Persia, but there are sources that it existed even before then. In this sport, there are four major concentrations, club swinging, plank lifting, chain swinging, and wrestling. The first involves swinging a light to later very heavy wooden club that, was, that would resemble a mace or sword in real life. The exercise helps build the shoulders and upper back extensively, which would allow a highly trained warrior to smash through any shield with ease. Plank lifting would consist of an athlete getting on their back and holding two large wooden or stone planks. They would then do variations of lifting these planks. In my opinion, this exercise is really similar to the modern day bench press, but a lot harder since you have to practice control and stability as well as strength. I've actually had the pleasure of visiting a house of strength in modern-day Iran. This exercise mimics the use of a heavy shield. After becoming a master at this exercise, a warrior would be expected to easily crush or deflect an enemy sword with ease. The next concentration is chained bow swinging. A chained bow resembles a bow and arrow. The actual bow is made of cast iron instead of wood, and the strings are made of chain instead of string or sinew, used in a regular bow. This exercise involves lifting a large metal bow over your head, which is made of iron and chains. This exercise built up your lats and arms in order to be able to fire the most devastating arrow shots to incapacitate your enemy. After becoming a master at this exercise, a soldier would be expected to fire armor-piercing arrow shots. The final, and in my opinion, most important piece of training involved in the sport of champions was Kushti, aka wrestling which is today Iran's national sport. This type of wrestling was not like modern day wrestling of today where you win by pinning your opponent. This was a different type of wrestling. It was called Pahlavani wrestling which was similar to submission wrestling today. The way this translated into the battlefield was that if a warrior was stripped of his weapon and shield he was expected to know how to fight in hand-to-hand combat. Punching and kicking would be deemed obsolete against someone wearing heavy armor 
so warriors would have to train in the art of chokes and joint locks to subdue their opponents. For those of you who are interested in martial arts history, pretty much every ancient society had a type of martial art that involved hand-to-hand -hand combat without weapons. In Japan it was Jiu-Jitsu, in Greece it was Pancration, and in Thailand it was Muay Thai, and the list goes on. This is why these sports are called martial arts, which literally means military arts. Fortunately, I was able to have a wrestling program in my towns growing up, from the time of elementary school into high school. And wow, I can honestly agree with the great Dan Gable that after wrestling, everything else is easy. I really pushed myself a lot to the physical limits in my lifetime, and a good 90% of those times were during wrestling. Although it may not have translated directly to the battlefield at the time, the level of discipline, humility, toughness, and physical fitness acquired during wrestling training would truly be valuable for a soldier. This might be slightly off topic, but I have to mention it because it made me absolutely furious. For those of you who don't know, wrestling in its entirety has been removed from the 2022 Olympics. Wrestling is one of the oldest, if not the oldest sport in the world, a sport which existed in the first opening ancient Olympic Games and the modern Olympic Games. To take the sport out of the Olympics is absolutely absurd. If you wouldn't mind, please join the Facebook group Save Olympic Wrestling and sign the Save Olympic Wrestling petition. Thank you so much in advance. For those of you who are interested in possibly training Vazesha Pahlavani, I can't even begin to tell you how awesome and fun it is. The most popular concentration, which is club swinging, has been proven to heal torn rotator cuffs and to strengthen rotator cuffs as well. Many elite powerlifters, such as Lou Simmons of the West Side Barbell Club, swear by it and do club swings for warm-ups of the shoulder. I, for one, can swear by it as well. I was unfortunate enough to dislocate my right shoulder two years ago, which left me unable to perform most of my push exercises. After slowly getting into club swinging, going from light to heavy, my shoulders saw a lot of improvement in a very short amount of time, and I was able to go right back to the gym. So for those of you who are interested, I'll leave links on the website on proper technique and how to make your own Persian clubs. So now, Persia finally had a mighty king, a powerful army, and was now a world power. Surrounding countries began to take notice. Some of them were happy that the mad king had been overthrown, but others were threatened by Cyrus's coronation and made plans to crush him. The most powerful of these men was King Croesus of Lydia, a military genius and a force to be reckoned with, commander of the most elite cavalry of the known world at the time, and last but not least, he was King Asiage's brother-in-law, and his brother-in-law was now furious. That of all people, a lowly Persian had ascended to the throne. His brother-in-law was no longer king, and his loving sister Aryanus was no longer queen. Something had to be done. Cyrus needed to be crushed. But before he would make any type of military decision, it was customary for the king to seek a prophecy from an oracle. Now before I go into further detail about the conflict between Croesus and Cyrus, I think it would be wise for me to give you some background information on the conflict. About 15 fans of the podcast wanted to know a little bit more about the origins of the Persians and Medeans. I'm going to go into that right now so you can understand the current story to a greater extent. Before Persia or Medea were legitimate kingdoms or forces to be reckoned with, the most powerful kingdom on the Iranian plateau was the kingdom of Elam, neighbor and rival of the ruthless and bloodthirsty Assyrian Empire. 
Elam was an ancient civilization centered in the far west and southwest of modern-day Iran, stretching from the lowlands of what is now Khuzestan and Elam province. In Akkadian and Hebrew, this kingdom was referred to as Elam. In classical literature, Elam was more often referred to as Susiana, a name derived from its capital, Susa. According to archaeological records, the people of Elam and Kingdom of Elam had been around since 3000 BC. For hundreds of years, the kingdom and later empire of Elam was so powerful that it rivaled the powerful Assyrian Empire. After countless back-and-forth wars, one of the two gigantic forces succumbed to the other, and in this case it was Elam. The Assyrians decimated Elam as they did most of their subjects. Now, for those of you who study history rigorously, we all know that after an empire falls, there's always a massive power vacuum that occurs afterwards. Elam was in shambles, and Assyria was in a state of civil war. Who would be the ones to fill the vacuum? It was a legendary and incredible leader by the name of Cyaxares, the father of Astyages and great-grandfather of Cyrus. Cyaxares annexed Elam for the Medeans and Persians. After he took over Elam, he now had the resources, manpower, and land to begin building a formidable military. One thing we need to note here is something we're going to see repeated when the Medeans or Persians conquer another empire or nation. Respect is always paid to their religions and culture. Elam no longer existed as an independent nation, but continued to live on in culture and language. Later on in Persian history, we see indigenous Elamite traditions kept alive, such as the use of the King of Ahsan title by Cyrus the Great and King Cambyses I of Ahsan. We also see numerous Persian kings wearing the traditional Elamite robe. We see in Persian art the use of Elamite mythical creatures such as the genii. We see the use of Elamite as the first of three official languages of the empire. Elamite scriptures and writings were used in thousands of administrative texts found in Darius' city of Persepolis. We see the continued worship of Elamite deities, the persistence of Elamite religious personnel and cults, supported by the crown. Again, Elam was gone as a nation, but would be around for much longer as far as a culture, language, and influence. It was through Elam that we begin to see Mesopotamian influences in Persian and Median culture. Elam was gone, so the attention now turned to the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was one of the most ruthless and bloody empires in all of history, but they were also one of the most important and pioneering empires in history. For the first time in history, we see a standard of weights and measures, professional standing armies, safe roads for travel, and all kinds of new improvements. Assyrians were famous for their ruthlessness and their violence, which would come back to bite them in the butt later. Just do yourself a favor and Google Assyrian Empire. You'll find many stone carvings of atrocities. I'll never forget when I saw a stone carving in college of Assyrian soldiers impaling a victim on a spear. I looked at the carving even closer and noticed something that gave me chills down my spine. Even talking about it right now is giving me chills down my spine. The soldiers were smiling. After decades among decades of abuse, the vassal states of Assyria had enough of it and called on a hero to save them. His name was Cyaxares the Great, the father of Astyages and great-grandfather of Cyrus the Great. Cyaxares reorganized and modernized the Median army, then joined with King Nabopolassar of Babylonia. 
This alliance was formalized through the marriage of Cyaxares' daughter Amytis with Nabopolassar's son Nebuchadnezzar II, the king who constructed the hanging gardens of Babylon as a present for Amytis to help her with the homesickness of the mountainous country of her birth, Medea. Together the two allies combined their two mighty forces and literally crushed the Assyrian Empire to the ground. I said before the Medeans and Persians usually treated their conquered foes with respect, but in this case things just got out of control. The Assyrians were so hated by their neighbors that after the formal conquest they poured in and got their revenge. The Assyrian Empire had been decimated so badly that hundreds of years after its defeat there were unknown castles and walls all throughout Mesopotamia that nobody knew about. These were old Assyrian strongholds that had been completely forgotten. Again, for those of you who are interested in the fall of the Assyrian Empire, there's an interesting podcast by Dan Carlin of Hardcore History called Judgment of Nineveh. I highly recommend you to download it. And if you want to read stories about a Greek mercenary visiting these abandoned sites, check out the Anabasis by Xenophon. The Assyrian Empire and Nineveh were no more. It was the year 612 BC. Now that Assyria was out of the way, King Cyaxares of Medea and King Nabopolassar of Babylonia began to consolidate their power. King Cyaxares, after many years in power, began to befriend his neighbors, one of these people being the Scythians. The Scythians, being nomadic, were allowed to hunt and forage in the land of Medea as long as they paid tribute in the form of produce to the king. Scythians were also conscripted into the Medean army for campaigns due to the fact that they were extraordinary horse archers. After one of their grand hunts, they came back to the king empty-handed, and naturally he was furious about this. After insulting them and shaming them greatly, they went on one more grand hunt, but this time they cut up a few of King Cyaxri's patrons, roasted them up, and fed them to the king. It's pretty funny how common this was in the ancient world. The king, after discovering this, pursued the Scythians to the edges of Medea into Lydia, where he found that King Altiatis was giving them asylum. King Cyaxres, after formally asking for the Scythians back, had his demand refused by King Altiatis. This would lead to one of the bloodiest wars in the ancient world, the Medean-Lydian War. This war would go back and forth for six years with many casualties until one final battle that we may very well know the exact date of. It was May 28, 585 BC, when the final battle between the Medeans and Lydians occurred on the bank of the River Halys. For those of you who are wondering where the River Halys is, the mouth of the river which pours into the Black Sea is dead in the middle of Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey. The river literally makes a C-shape after that bending in towards Asia Minor and then going outwards towards the rest of Asia, where it finally stops at the Kizilmak Basin, or Red Basin, where it originates. The grand armies of both Median King Cyaxres and Lydian King Altiatis met on the banks of the river for one final battle to decide it all. According to Herodotus, in the middle of a heated and bloody battle, the two armies noticed that day all of a sudden became night because the moon overlapped the sun. What was happening here was a solar eclipse. Seeing this as an omen, King Altiatis and Cyaxares I agreed on a truce. When I read this, I became a bit skeptical. The story just seems too mythical to be true. So I decided to do some of my own independent research. This is a common theme throughout history, one where science and reason prevail over myth and legend. 
This is a famous battle that has been spoken of throughout the ancient world many times, so it's not out of the ordinary that both historians and scientists should question it, and I did. You all know I would never present you with questionable sources, so I dug this up from NASA. Similar to how we can 100% accurately predict solar and lunar eclipses, we can also post-dict past ones easily. According to NASA, the eclipse peaked over the Atlantic Ocean at the latitude and longitude coordinates of 37.9 north and 46.2 west, and the umbral path reached southwestern Anatolia in the evening hours. The Halys River is just within the error margin. In layman's terms, this means we know for a fact that the eclipse did not happen there on that day or even that year. Science and reason win again. An alternate theory regarding the state of the battle suggests that Herodotus was recounting carelessly events that he didn't witness personally, and furthermore, the solar eclipse is just a misinterpretation of his text. According to this view, what happened could have been a lunar eclipse, right before moonrise at dusk. If the warriors had planned their battle activities expecting a full moon, as in the previous few days, it would have been quite a shock to have dusk fall suddenly as an occluded moon rose. If this theory is correct, the battle's date would not be 585 BC, but possibly September 3rd, 609 BC, or July 3rd, 587 BC, dates when such dusk-time lunar eclipses did occur over the Halys River. Regardless of when the battle happened, we all know for a fact that eventually a truce was agreed between the two kings. These two empires had been at each other's throats for a long time, and too much blood was shed, so a truce had to be instated that would not be broken. For those of you who listen to episode one of the podcast, you're going to hear some names that are going to ring a bell. Syaxeres married his firstborn son, Astyages, yes, the man who will become King Astyages, Cyrus's future grandfather, to the Lydian king Altiatus's daughter, Aryanus. This created a truce set in stone that would not likely be broken, because the blood of the two families were now intertwined. Altiatus's son was probably not too happy to see his loving sister taken away from him to Medea, but also would probably not want anything less for his sister than to be queen of a powerful nation. If the kingdom of his brother-in-law was overthrown and his loving sister was no longer queen, he probably would have been a very angry man, right? This brilliant young prince's name was Croesus. Yes, the same Croesus we were talking about before. Herodotus says the Median and Lydian formalities in a truce are the same as the Greeks, except for one pretty cool custom. In this custom, each leader makes an incision in their arm and has the other suck the blood out of it, thus making them bonded by blood. Okay, now that we cleared that up, let's fast forward again to where we were before, Cyrus's time. King Croesus was the mighty king of Lydia, and for those of you who don't know, Lydia is where modern Turkey is. The landmass has in history been called Anatolia, or Asia Minor. King Croesus came from a long line of very powerful and prosperous kings. In his lifetime, he had conquered some of the most powerful Greek kingdoms on the Aegean coast. He had dozens and dozens of vassal states paying him tribute annually, and was a leader of one of the strongest, if not the absolute strongest military in the world at the time. Croesus was very content with what he had, up until he met a man who would change his life. It was the day he was introduced to a great lawmaker and leader named Solon, a journeyman who had seen much of the known world at the time. 
According to Herodotus, Croesus received Solon as his guest and lodged him in the royal palace. On the third or fourth day after he made his servants give Solon a grand tour of Croesus's dominion over his treasuries, they showed him all the greatness and magnificence of what Croesus had. After Solon had finally viewed all that Croesus had to show him, Croesus asked Solon, Stranger of Athens, we have heard much of thy wisdom and of thy travels throughout many lands, from love of knowledge and of wish to see the world. I am curious, therefore, to inquire of thee, whom of all the men that you have seen thou deemest the most happy? He asked this because he thought of himself as the happiest of all men. The reply Solon gives would throw Croesus into a blind rage of jealousy. Solon answered him without flattery and said, Tell us of Athens, sire. After hearing this, Croesus was incredibly confused and demanded sharply, And wherefore dost thou deem Tellus of Athens the happiest of all men? Now, I would go deeply into it, but at this rate this podcast is going well over an hour, so I'm going to have to paraphrase for you guys. Solon goes into detail about Tellus, who was brave, loved, and grew old to see his great-grandchildren. Croesus, upon hearing this, became furious. In my opinion, the reason for this was that he was jealous of the glory and love that Tellus had experienced throughout his life. Tellus was a loved man and a prosperous man. He lived so long that he was able to see his grandchildren and his grandchildren's children. And he died in the battlefield among his men, fighting side by side with him, not commanding them from the distance. Although Croesus was a prosperous king, he only had two sons, one who was deaf and dumb, and the other one who was a formidable heir, but bore King Croesus no sons. And as far as generalship, King Croesus was an excellent general, but I doubt he fought alongside his men side by side, as Tellus did, to receive an undying love from them and his countrymen, as Tellus did. Although he made light of it, I'm sure that Croesus was genuinely jealous of Tellus. When Solon was finally finished with his explanation, Croesus inquired a second time, who, after Tellus, is the happiest of men? Expecting Solon to say King Croesus, Solon answered, Cleobus and Beto. He then told Croesus about the love and admiration their people had for them, and how in one event, citizens of their land, instead of oxen, carried their mother and her companions forty furlongs to a festival honoring Juno, since there was no oxen. When King Croesus asks Solon how he gauged happiness, Solon gives him a very long answer which I'm not going to regurgitate for you right now, but instead I'll paraphrase. His first point was that happiness was not really about fortunes and power, but rather about respect, honor, and love, and being content. His second point was that he'd not be able to gauge his happiness until Croesus was dead, because then and only then could he assess his entire life. I want you all to keep in mind that not once did Solon stress material wealth or possessions to gauge happiness. If you're interested in reading the story yourself, check out Herodotus's The Histories, Book 1, one of the best books I've ever read. After that night, Solon departed from the company of King Croesus and left him thinking deeply. Croesus was deeply insulted and dishonored after hearing a man say to him that he was not the most fortunate man on earth. King Croesus began to evaluate his own future critically. After a long night of thinking, he finally went to sleep, and that night he would experience a dream that would haunt him. The gods came down to punish him for his arrogance in thinking he was the most fortunate of all men. 
In his dream he saw his son, Atis, killed by a weapon forged from iron. When he woke up he was terrified. King Croesus had two sons, one who was deaf and dumb, the other who was a champion among his men. His name was Atis. Atis was a young, charismatic, unmarried man who was respected by his peers and took the field during battle with his men regularly. Atis was obviously the apparent heir to the throne of Lydia. If anything were to happen to him, the entire empire would crumble. The dream which was so real made Croesus take drastic precautions to protect his son. The first thing he did was to not allow his son into battle anymore. The second thing he did was to remove all swords and spears from inside the castle in case someone were to attack his son. After taking these precautions, he realized that it was time for his son to be married. In my opinion, he did this because if his son were to die by some freak accident, the least he can do is for his son to have a child so when Croesus and his son die, there is an heir to the throne. King Croesus found his son a worthy wife and began making plans for their wedding. Everything was going smoothly and as planned, until a man covered in blood ran into King Croesus's quarters. He was a Phrygian of noble kingly blood by the name of Adrastus. He came to the king asking for purification. When the king asked him why he needed purification, Adrastus elaborated and stated, I am son of Gordias, son of Midas. I am named Adrastus. The man I unintentionally slew was my own brother. For this my father drove me from the land, and I lost all. Then I fled here to thee. King Croesus, seeing that this man was not at fault, granted him asylum, and allowed him to live in the palace. Almost immediately after that, a complaint was made to the king of a creature in the Mycenaean Olympus terrorizing the citizens and devouring all the cornfields. It was a massive monster of a boar. I have a question for my listeners here. I remember back in high school my teacher telling me that maize, or corn, was a vegetable native to the Americas and only brought to Europe after Columbus's expedition. But here in 500 BC, we hear of Herodotus talking about corn? I wonder if the translator of this text translated falsely, or if there's another type of food people called corn in those days. If you happen to know more on this subject, please post your knowledge in the Persian History Podcast Facebook group. Thank you so much in advance. The citizens now desperate called upon King Croesus to allow his son to go kill the boar with a party of his best soldiers. King Croesus in a fit of rage declined, knowing that he had to do his best to protect his son. He would not put him in any type of danger. Instead, he told the Mycenaeans that he'd send an elite hunting party to slay the boar. The Mycenaeans were content with this offer, but one man was not, and that was the king's son. Itis. He ran into the room after the Mycenaeans left and addressed his father. He asked his father, now that he's not allowed to fight in battle or even hunt, how is he going to earn the respect of the people? He demanded that his father either let him go on the hunt or give him a valid reason for keeping him at home. After hearing his son's plea, King Croesus told him about the terrible dream he recently had. His son, after hearing this, gave his father an extremely clever rebuttal. I blame thee not for keeping watch over me after a dream so terrible. Now the dream, thou said thyself, foretold that I should die stricken by an iron weapon. But what hands has a boar to strike with? What iron weapon does he wield? Yet this is what thou fearest for me. 
Had the dream said that I should have died by a tusk pierce, then thou had done well to keep me away. But it said a weapon. Now here we do not combat men, but a wild animal. I pray thee, therefore, let me go with thee. His son was right. How could he possibly die fighting a boar, when a boar does not wield an iron weapon, and does not even have hands to grasp an iron weapon? After hearing this inarguable point, King Croesus said, There thou hast me, my son. Thy interpretation is better than mine. I yield to it, and change my mind, and consent to let thee go. Atis and his men began preparing for the grand hunt, but before they left, King Croesus had to have one word with a man who was still in debt to him. He called on Adrastus, the same man we talked about before, who took refuge in King Croesus's castle and killed his brother. He told Adrastus that if he wished to repay his debt, he should do everything he can in his power to protect Atis, even if it means putting his own life on the line. Adratus happily obliged and told the king that risking his own life is a small favor compared to what the king has done for him. Now that his son's safety was assured, King Croesus happily allowed his son to depart on the grand hunt. After some time searching for the wild beast in the mountains surrounding Mycia, the hunting party finally cornered the gigantic boar and agreed on all hurling their javelins at the boar in unison. They all got ready and in one combined force hurled their javelins at the boar. But once they had all thrown their javelins, everyone went dead silent. The ruthless menacing beast was finally slain, but there was one more amongst the dead. Adrastus had flung his spear towards the boar and missed his target. The spear went directly into Atis's back, instantly killing him. The prophecy had come true. The son of King Croesus had indeed been killed and killed by an iron weapon. The hunting party finally made its way back to Lydia. Adrastus presented Atis's corpse to the king, weeping and telling the king that the grief and misery of his two mistakes, one in killing his own brother by accident, and one in killing his purifier's son by accident, was too much for him to bear. He asked King Croesus to please kill him so that he could be relieved of his grief. The king, after hearing this, told Adrastus that this incident was not his fault by any means. The only person he could blame here was himself, because he didn't take enough heed towards the dream he saw. Although Adrastus was pardoned of his crime, he could not take the pain of his wrongdoings, and decided to commit suicide inside the tomb of Atis in apology. With the death of Atis, the kingdom of Lydia no longer had an heir to the throne. It is now when we begin to see King Croesus slowly lose his mind, just like his brother-in-law lost his. Now that his son was dead and his bloodline was no more, how would King Croesus be remembered? If people don't remember you through your bloodline that lasts through the ages, then your only option is for people to remember you through your extraordinary deeds in history. Croesus knew exactly what he had to do. He was going to accomplish what his father could not. He no longer had anything to lose. His one son was deaf and dumb, and the other one was dead. It's often in times where we lose someone dear to us, or are betrayed, where we make questionable and sometimes outright insane decisions. In this case, we see the king of Lydia do such a thing. King Croesus began devising plans to invade and conquer 
Persia. He would finally get his glorious revenge and slaughter those who had wronged his father generations ago. Croesus did not only want to be king of Lydia, he wanted to be king of the known world, and he was prepared to do anything and destroy anyone to have his ultimate goal. Before King Croesus could initiate preparations for an invasion on such a scale, he first had to seek prophecies from the oracles. He sent his emissaries throughout all the land to inquire whether or not he should invade Persia. For those of you who are well versed in Greek history and mythology, Greek oracles always give a very vague answer. They do this so you can interpret the answer yourself. How you interpret their answer has a lot to do with what type of person you are. A peaceful, moral, and temperate man may take the oracle's prophecy a totally different way than a power-hungry, lustful, immoral megalomaniac. What I really love about Greek history is how amongst all the hard facts, the writers always find a way to add some magic, mythology, and a moral lesson in the end. I want you all to think to yourselves for a minute and wonder, what could this prophecy mean? After receiving numerous replies from each oracle, King Croesus finally heard a prophecy he liked. The prophecy stated, Wait till the time shall come when a mule is monarch of Medea, then thou delicate Lydian, away to the pebbles of Hermes. Haste, O, oh, haste thee away, nor blush to behave like a coward. In my opinion, there are two ways you can look at this prophecy. One is to literally think that if a mule becomes king of Persia, you attack. Another way to look at it is this way. For those of you who don't know, a mule is a crossbreed between a horse and a donkey, which is a brutally strong and ideal animal for carrying large amounts of weight. A mule can also not reproduce. Cyrus was the offspring of a Median and a Persian, thus in a way giving him the title of a mule. King Croesus, after listening to this prophecy, made more sacrifices to this oracle and offered more wealth. The second prophecy the oracle revealed to Croesus was one which sealed the deal. The oracle said, Go to war with Persia, and you will destroy a mighty empire. The oracle told King Croesus that if he were to attack Persia, a great empire would fall. King Croesus took this as a green light to invade Persia and do what his father could not, bring the entire Persian and Median kingdom under his grasp. After giving a handsome sum of wealth to the oracles and temples, King Croesus assembled his men. Before I go any further, I must remind you all that Lydia was by far one of the richest countries in the world at the time. King Croesus had hundreds of vassal states, all paying handsome tributes to him. Just by the vast sum of wealth he endowed to the temples, you can clearly see how rich this man was. English poets and writers hundreds of years later still use the term rich as Croesus. His army consisted of well-equipped, well-paid, and seasoned veterans of many wars with the Greeks. He didn't see any type of real threat in Cyrus. Cyrus was just a boy compared to him, with only one or two major battles under him. Croesus had seen hundreds of battles in his day. Now with the will of the prophecy behind him, King Croesus invaded Persia with astounding confidence. Once preparations were made, and right before he departed, a fellow Lydian by the name of Sendanus came to him, who was a wise man respected by most Lydians. He told King Croesus, Thou art thou, O king, to make war against men who wear leather trousers, 
and who all have their garments of leather, who feed on not what they like, but what they can get from the soil that is sterile and unkindly, who do not indulge in wine, but drink water, who possess no figs, nor anything else that is good to eat. If then thou conquerest them, what can thou get from them, seeing that they have nothing at all? But if they conquer thee, consider how much that is precious thou wilt lose. If they once get a taste of our pleasant things, they will keep such hold of them, that we shall never be able to make them lose their grasp. For my part I am thankful to the gods that they have not put it into the hearts of the Persians to invade Lydia. What he's trying to say here is, listen, the men you're about to face are more rugged than anything you've ever seen. They don't have half the amount of indulgences your men have. They dress plainly and eat even more plainly. What exactly do you have to gain from them? You have absolutely nothing to gain from them, and they have absolutely everything to gain from you. Please do not go to war with them. That was some real wise advice he gave his king. Just like the last episode where I mentioned Voltaire's famous quote, the sounds of history are filled with wooden shoes coming up the stairs and silken slippers going down. And as we all know, over and over again, history does indeed repeat itself. Ignoring his countryman's heed, King Croesus began marching his army east to make his initial attack on the major city of Cappadocia, a city right on the border of Persia and Lydia. Since the river Halys served as a natural wall between Persia and Lydia, there were no bridges connecting the two countries, which means that King Croesus had no way of crossing the river with his massive army. Remember before when I told you that King Croesus was a genius? You're about to see why. He had his troops dig several canals, one major one which would divert the river's course. On their final shovel or pick strike on the hard earth, water began pouring into the canals. King Croesus turned the gigantic Halys River into two medium rivers and several small canals, small enough for his entire army to cross over them before erosion caused the river to become whole again. Now that his entire army was across the river into Persian territory, the havoc would begin. Croesus laid siege on Cappadocia, ravaged their fields, destroyed their city, and sold the women and children to slavery. After conquering and plundering the surrounding villages, towns, and small cities, King Croesus saw something which would leave him in awe. His intelligence and scouts probably informed him that Cyrus's army was smaller than his, since he was a new king and all. But they couldn't have been more wrong. Since his last battle with his grandfather, a considerable amount of time had passed. Cyrus had an army of veterans from the Battle of the Persian Border, the Battle of Hybra, and the Battle of Pastargai beneath his feet. Over the years, he took a considerable amount of time in training, drilling, and preparing these soldiers for war. The inevitable clash between his soldiers and that of the mighty King Croesus would become one of the largest military conflicts, if not the largest military conflict of the time. Both sides had their advantages and disadvantages. According to Herodotus, the Lydians had legendary cavaliers and horses. Since they couldn't face the Greeks in infantry wars, they used their cavalry to crush them over and over. And with the lush green flatlands of Anatolia, they had the perfect environment to breed and train the mightiest of horses. The Persians also had excellent horsemen and horses, but didn't have the experience the Lydian troops had in the field. 
What they did have on their side, though, was an extremely well-trained infantry, including the Immortals, and superior morale since they had recently won several battles. Although they didn't match the Lydians in experience, it had been a long time since the Lydian troops engaged in hand-to-hand -hand fought battle. Their experience was superior, but outdated. The Persians had just fought and were fresh from the battlefield, so in a way, they actually had an advantage in modern experience. I like to look at this fight this way. Imagine a heavyweight professional boxer with a record of 55-1, and one, who still stays in shape from time to time and spars once in a while, versus a new up-and-coming 21-year-old amateur boxer who's had 10 fights under his belt. It really could go either way. Cyrus, upon hearing information on King Croesus' invasion, began to prepare for war. He organized his mighty army and began heading west. We don't know for sure what route he took to Anatolia, but I'm pretty confident he didn't go through the flatlands of Mesopotamia. The flatlands were all too accommodating for the Lydians, and he risked a surprise attack. He most likely took the more treacherous route through the mountains. Cyrus probably marched his men through the cold, unforgiving Zagros and Caucasus Mountains. Town after town, city after city, he recruited more and more men to come fight on the frontier. Skilled nomadic horse archers from eastern Persia, heavy cavalry from western Persia, heavy infantry from the mountains, and the most powerful and bravest of men to join the newly formed Immortal Corps. The march must have really toughened up the men, hardening their bodies physically and toughening them up mentally one last time before they fought for their lives in Cappadocia. Throughout his march from Persia into Anatolia, Cyrus's army must have grown considerably because what Croesus saw on the horizon was a massive army of Persians, larger and more grand than even his own. Little did he know that the Medeans who he just defeated were not his subjects, but his closest of friends now. All the different ethnicities of Persia were united into one force. It was time for payback, and whether he liked it or not, Croesus would now have to fight this formidable enemy. The two colossal forces finally met. Back and forth, back and forth, cities were taken and exchanged as each king outwitted the other. After months of fighting, a harsh and frigid winter fell upon Anatolia. Croesus had a master plan. During his back-and-forth battles with Cyrus, he was clever enough to send emissaries to Sparta, Babylonia, and Egypt for requests of alliances. The rich and powerful pharaoh Amasis II of Egypt, as well as King Nabonidus of Babylonia, and Sparta gladly obliged knowing how powerful of an ally Croesus was. This master plan was to disband his mercenaries and winter in his powerful fortified capital city of Sardis and to renew his campaign once spring arose. This time he would attack Cyrus with a combined Lydian, Egyptian, Babylonian, and Spartan coalition. But little did Croesus know that Cyrus and his Persians, who were very acclimated to the freezing weather in their native Albors, Zagros, and Caucasus mountains, would follow him straight to Sardis. Croesus consolidated his native forces and prepared them for a long march home. He disbanded the mercenaries he hired for the campaign and promised them renewal of fighting in the spring. 
Herodotus said that Cyrus's forces were so quick in following the Lydians that Croesus didn't even know the Persians were on his tail until he reached the Hermus River on the outskirts of his capital, Sardis. Croesus took some time to think and set his troops up on the flat plains around the river. This is perfect battleground for an army of powerful horsemen. In this environment, Croesus had the upper hand. Cyrus was reluctant to fight here until his best general, Harpagus, made an odd but effective suggestion. He proposed for Cyrus to have all his horsemen dismount their horses and instead ride into battle on camels. Camels were not used for war in the Persian army, but instead only used as pack animals. On this day, things would be a bit different. Harpagus told Cyrus that horses are scared to death of camels. They can't stand the sight or smell of them, and if they see a mass of camels running towards them full speed, they'll flee right away. At first when I was reading this, I thought it was the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Camels are actually a cousin of the horse, so why would they be scared of them? Once I read this, I decided to do some independent research and was blown away at some of the findings I discovered. All I did was Google, are horses scared of camels? And I found website after website after website of horse experts saying that this is indeed true and that horses are indeed scared to death of camels, unless you train them not to be. Lydian war horses probably never saw camels before, so on this day they were in store for an unpleasant surprise. The much-anticipated battle was about to commence. The Lydian horsemen mounted their horses and in the distance saw the Persians mounted on this weird animal most of them have probably never seen before. Both sides charged full speed screaming. The bloodbath was about to begin. At the last second before the clash, the Lydian horses jumped and neighed in fear when they saw the camels. This caused a great portion of the Lydian cavalry to fall over and for others to turn around. Herodotus said the Lydian soldiers were so brave that they still fought the Persians after they fell off their horses. They fought on foot. The battle lasted all day with heavy casualties on both sides. Croesus took his remaining forces and fled to Sardis, his heavily fortified capital city. Cyrus again swiftly followed him there and prepared his troops for a long siege. Day after day, the Persians attacked with no success. The city was just too strong. After 14 days, a Persian soldier saw a Lydian soldier drop his helmet down the slope of the wall. The Lydian soldier found an easy path to the bottom, quickly climbed down and back up again with his helmet. A weakness in the wall was finally breached. Cyrus then promised a reward for the first man to scale the wall. His name was Hyroides the Mardian the same man who witnessed the Lydian soldier climb down the wall in the first place. Cyrus's troops then stormed the city. He gave strict orders to his troops to find Croesus and to bring him back to him alive. Croesus was not to be killed. Even if he fought back, the troops were supposed to bring him back alive. After searching rigorously, Croesus was nowhere to be found. As his palace was being stormed, a Persian soldier saw a man and his son who he then approached to cut both down, not knowing that this was King Croesus and his son. Croesus saw the Persian soldier approaching him and didn't budge because he didn't care whether he lived or died. As the Persian soldier lifted his blade to cut them both down, his deaf and mute son screamed out, Do not kill Croesus, fellow! 
Those are the first words he ever uttered in his entire life, and from that point on he retained the power of speech for the rest of his life. Croesus and his son were taken prisoner. And after a mighty reign of 14 years and a siege of 14 days, King Croesus had finally fulfilled the oracle's prophecy. Croesus attacked Persia and destroyed a mighty empire, the empire of his own. For his recklessness, audacity, and all the lives he took for no reason, King Croesus was put on a pyre to be burned. It was at the moment before his death where Croesus remembered his conversations with Solon. You don't really know how truly happy you are and can't gauge your happiness until you're about to die and look back at your life. Here was the mighty King Croesus about to be put to death by a lowly Persian. All his riches, fame, power were gone. He had nothing. And even if he did have it all, what would he take to the next world with him? His entire life was all about material possessions. Instead of listening to Solon and concentrating on the more intrinsic things in life, he only concentrated on the materialistic aspects of life. As the flames grew stronger and stronger, he screamed three times, Solon! 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 Cyrus wanted to know who Solon was and asked Croesus, but he wouldn't answer him. After he was asked again who Solon was, Croesus replied, He was a man who ought to have talked with every king on the world. I would give a fortune to have had it so. After he told Cyrus the entire story, Cyrus was so touched by it that he immediately told his troops to put out the flame. By this time the fire had gotten so hot that nothing could put it out. In his last moments, Croesus finally realized what it meant to be truly happy and thanked the gods for teaching him this lesson. Herodotus then says Apollo caused a powerful storm to abrupt, and heavy rains fell, putting out the fire completely. Cyrus took in Croesus as his advisor and dear friend. He then ordered the troops to stop sacking the city of Sardis. The friendship that Cyrus and Croesus would develop would be incredible, and in his future campaigns, Croesus would prove to be a very valuable asset. Lydia was now under Persian control. As Cyrus treated all conquered foes, they were to be ruled by a native satrap, they would have freedom of religion and freedom of speech. He may have been a conqueror, but in essence, he was a liberator. Cyrus was a liberator, a champion, and advocate of free speech, and an advocate of practicing your religion freely. Shortly after his conquest of Lydia, news came to Cyrus of a king who had crushed the ancient kingdom of Israel, killed a great portion of its inhabitants, and exiled the rest to his capital in Babylon. This king forced his religion on his subjects, treated his citizens like slaves, and was a true definition of a tyrant. His name was King Nabonidus of Babylon. Who would free the Jews from Babylon? Who would end the oppressive rule of Nabonidus? Will Cyrus sit back and watch the people live as slaves? Or will he use his newfound power to do something about it? Find out next time on the Persian History Podcast. Thank you once again for your support. I really appreciate all of you who listened to Episode 1 and Episode 2 of the podcast. I want to thank my most loyal and supportive listeners, Nata from Finland, Antonio from Portugal, Ernest from the U.S., Steve from England, Hervoya from Croatia, and Ryan from Dominican Republic. I promise to have more podcasts up regularly for your enjoyment. 
please help support the podcast by sharing the Facebook page and sharing the website. Once again, thank you for your support. Goodbye and Khudafis Donish Mandoya Aziza.